New York City, authorities make no excuses about targeting rowdy bar patrons and aggressive panhandlers. But some petty crimes, like jaywalking, go largely ignored. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're focusing our attention on small crimes, from crossing the street in the middle to snatching paper clips from the office. I took batteries once. There was a huge supply of them, so... It took only like two or three. And later on the show, the battle over development plans for a Bronx armory. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. Petty crimes like urinating in public rarely make headlines. David Krychek can attest to that. He's a longtime crime reporter for the New York Daily News and other publications. Dave, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. It's my pleasure. So as a crime reporter, how much reporting of petty crimes do you actually do? Almost none. Daily newspapers tend to focus on uh, major case crimes like homicides and things like that. We probably should spend more time on petty crime because it affects far more people. You know, there might be one murder a day in the city, but there are scores of robberies. There are scores of burglaries. There are probably hundreds of cases of things like shoplifting and pickpocketing and auto theft and those sorts of crimes affect uh, so many more people than, you know, the random uh, violent act. Have you ever tried to make that argument with your editors? You know, at the time that I was police bureau chief in New York City, George, there were about seven murders a day on average. So it would be hard to make the argument that shoplifting was more important than, you know, the fact that you had 2,100 bodies a year uh, piling up uh, across the city. You know, crimes diminished since then, thank God. If we managed to get a petty crime story in the newspaper, it was generally as a trend story or a celebrity story, frankly. Um, every time a celebrity got arrested for shoplifting, that would uh, you know, be uh, an opportunity for us to put in statistics uh, about shoplifting, basically make it a trend story. Who can forget Winona Ryder, right? Winona Ryder was a good example, and Leona Helmsley was another good example, or bad example, I guess. I don't remember that one. What did she steal? I think she went into a, she went into a pharmacy and stole some sort of cosmetics. Um, yeah, sad but true. What other trends do you recall covering when it comes to petty crime? Back in the 80s, the big trend was for uh, men to walk around with shoulder bags with their auto radios, their Benzy boxes in it. So, you know, car break-ins were so common back then that people were, you know, doing that sort of thing. I think that has kind of faded but uh, I suppose there still are removable uh, GPS systems, for example. I'm sure people, you know, take them out of their cars now when they uh, when they leave. The other trend story that I can remember on petty crime that crops up occasionally is pickpocketing. Uh, there will be some new scheme that pickpockets use. For example, I remember a trend story a while back where a group was using a broken wine bottle scam in Times Square that bump up against a tourist drop a cheap bottle of wine on the sidewalk and, you know, in the commotion as they were, the tourists were, were apologizing, the uh, comrades of the um, of the pickpockets would swoop in and start taking stuff out of their pockets and their purses. Yeah, Dave, you mentioned the stolen car radio story as a trend story. Today, I can think of the stolen iPods in the subways. Exactly. I think that's a really good uh, parallel, in fact. You know, and again, we're talking about objects that cost, you know, two, $300 that have substantial value to them, but, uh, you know, they just don't make the papers unless, you know, you, you put together six or seven individuals who've gone through the same thing, and then you have, uh, you have either a cluster or a trend, depending on how you look at it. And, uh, you know, frankly, those 
trends can be self-fulfilling. If you put in the newspaper that a cluster of three similar types of uh, scams have happened, for example, there are lots of uh, newbie criminals who are saying to themselves, hey, that's a good idea. I think I'll try that. So, you know, you'll find more and more. Once you report a trend, you've sort of helped create the trend. It's like the old Lincoln Steffens, the famous muckraking journalist, had a famous story called I Make a Crime Wave. He was working at police headquarters for one of the New York papers way back when, and you know, he would uh, say that there was a trend in the city of crimes against elderly persons, and uh, sure enough, uh, there would be a trend soon enough uh, of uh, crimes against elderly persons. Thanks so much for your time. George, my pleasure. David Krychek writes about crime for the New York Daily News and other publications. While most petty crimes are ignored by the press, drink on your stoop and you may find yourself front-page news. That's what happened to Brooklyn resident Kimber Van Rye. He got a ticket for drinking a beer on his stoop last fall, and when he fought the charge, his story made the rounds on local blogs, TV stations, and even the New York Times. Last uh, late September, late at night, I was out on the stoop of my building after watching um, some politics on TV and had just finished cleaning up my apartment and took some garbage out and was sitting on my front stoop uh, finishing off a beer. A police car rolled up on the street and uh, they flagged me over to the car. I didn't really know what it was for initially. I thought maybe they wanted directions or something. I left my beer on my stoop. I walked over to the car and they told me they were ticketing me for an open container. I mean, the police were fairly calm about the whole thing, and I was, I didn't quite realize what was happening at first, you know, and once I got into it, you know, I was very polite, they were very polite, they were sort of dismissive of the whole thing, like, we're going to write you this ticket, but, you know, you can either mail it in, or you can go to court, and and they're going to probably just throw it out. So they didn't seem overly concerned about the violation, even as they were writing me the ticket. Right from the get-go, I decided I wasn't going to accept it, and I was just going to push it through the system. I'd never been ticketed. I'd never been to court in in New York before. So, yeah, I just decided I was going to stand on principle, and it was largely a private property principle that I was arguing that I was on my own property, being on my own stoop and an owner of the co-op and president of the co-op board even. It was very strange. I mean, there were judges that didn't show up, uh, so the case was delayed. There was another judge that dismissed himself from the case because he had read too much about it in the media. Finally, we got to a judge months later that just looked at everything and was really scratching his head, like, why is this going on for so long? Let's just get rid of this. This is ridiculous. I have become a bit of a spokesperson for the issue of the open container violations. I mean, even a couple weeks ago, the Brooklyn Borough President Marty Markowitz was interviewed on TV drinking a glass of wine on a stoop in Brooklyn in the middle of the day. I was called by one of the local papers for comment, and the borough president's office actually wound up responding through a spokesperson to that article, basically with the borough president, an elected political figure you know, in New York City, stating that he thought that the law himself was ridiculous. I'm sure they're still giving out tickets. I know if they ever gave me one, I would immediately call the Brooklyn borough president's office and uh, ask for a little help from Marty. I think there are legitimate ticketing situations. Jaywalking, you know, open containers, some of those just seem kind of unnecessary and you have to leave it up to the individual to make some of their own judgments and live their lives uh, as best they can.
When we caught up with Kimber Van Rye in Brooklyn during last week's heat wave, he was, yet again, nursing a beer on his front stoop and making no apologies for it. Criminologist George Kelling thinks stopping major crimes starts with targeting small ones. He's the co-author of the long-debated Broken Windows Theory. Petty crimes would be, uh, uh, in, in terms of the things that have most interested me, things like vandalism, aggressive panhandling, prostitution, drunken youths in parks, those kinds of low-level crimes that we generally call misdemeanors. We see a whole lot less of that in New York City these days. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think there was a strong movement in New York City that started during the 1970s, really, in the private sector as well as, uh, uh, as, well as the transportation sectors to do something about low-level crimes, vagrancy, uh, uh, loitering for the purpose of whether it was prostitution or drug dealing, whatever. And there were serious troubles around many of the parks, and uh, there was a move in the private sector ultimately resulting in the creation of business improvement districts, which began to lay claim to some public spaces and pressure police to start to take action. And uh, I think ultimately uh, the real early victory was the victory uh, in the subway, during the late 80s, uh, for those listeners who are old enough and remember, the New York City subway was purgatory. And within a very short time, once Bratton was appointed as head of the transit place uh, by Robert Kiley, the subway was brought under control. It became a civil place. And it was not just that minor crimes uh, uh, were reduced. Major crimes were reduced as well. You were a part of that effort to reduce vandalism in the subways, right? That's correct. Yeah, Bob Kiley... Uh, asked me to come in and do some consulting about the issue. And uh, ultimately, uh, my colleague Robert Wasserman and I recommended to Kylie that he ought to be thinking about recruiting Bratton to head up the subway. You're the co-developer of what's known as the broken windows theory. Yes. Describe that theory for us. Well, uh, James Q. Wilson and I uh, wrote an article in The Atlantic in uh, 1982 called Broken Windows. And basically, it was a metaphor And it went something like this. Just as a broken window left untended is a sign that nobody cares and leads to more serious damage, so disorderly behavior and conditions left untended are signs that nobody cares and leads to fear of crime, more serious crime, and urban decay. And uh, basically it was a metaphor that said these minor things really matter and you better do something about them because if you don't, you'll not only have the minor crimes, uh, the predators will start moving in as well with serious crimes. We tend to forget the, that success in the subway, and uh, in many respects it was a, pre, a precursor to what happened in New York City because uh, Giuliani, uh, Mayor Giuliani, became a student of what happened in the subway and his second time around ran on pretty much taking, uh, well, the squeegee men were the symbol uh, uh, when during the second uh, campaign that Giuliani ran. Again, he became a student of Broken Windows and uh, strongly advocated it and then recruited Bratton. The broken windows theory has been a controversial one. There are people who have said that it doesn't take into account other factors that could influence crime reduction, like changes in poverty levels or housing conditions. What do you say to those arguments? The debate about broken windows is nobody's argued that disorderly conditions create fear. There's been no challenge to that, basically. There's so much in the literature that supports that, uh, that nobody's challenged that. 
The question was, what's the link between disorderly behavior and serious crime? And the attacks on broken windows, well, there are two sorts of attacks. So one uh, on the one side was the attack that said, you know, you're criminalizing the poor. And the other side was, there really is no link between disorderly behavior and serious crime. Well, now there have been, uh, there's been research in Holland, six experiments in Holland. There's been an experiment in Lowell. There's an experiment in, uh, uh, that was Lowell, Massachusetts, an experiment in Jersey City. All the research, and that is experimental research, uh, has come out with the same finding, and that is that there's a strong link between disorderly conditions, cleaning them up, and the reduction in crime. So I think that argument is uh, no longer holds much water. Those experiments in Holland were pretty interesting. There was one experiment done where money was sticking out of a mailbox, and people were more likely to take it when the mailbox had graffiti on it. Yep. It sends out this message, nobody cares. Nobody cares, and if everyone else does it, why shouldn't I do it? And if there was ever an environment and that was the case, that was clearly the subway. But also, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, I, I mean, and I've done a lot of consulting in Los Angeles and Denver and uh, Allentown and Milwaukee and other places. You start, in, uh, you start doing broken windows, and crime starts to decline in those areas. Now, on the other hand, Broken windows, my concern has always been that broken windows be done properly because if you decide that you're going to do something about disorderly behavior, you better make sure your police are well-trained because that's a highly discretionary activity. You have to make sure that there's not racial profiling. You have to be very careful when you're implementing broken windows. So uh, I think those who have criticized broken windows for criminalizing the poor have a point, but I don't think they've uh, taken into account the extent to which both Wilson and I have advocated, if you're going to do this, you better do it smart and you better do it within the context of community policing. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has made no apologies of his targeting of petty crimes. But the NYPD here is even known for ticketing people for drinking beer on their front stoops. Do you think that's going too far? Well, it's a highly discretionary activity, and my guess is that officers use considerable discretion. I think I think it depends on how they respond. If you're in particular neighborhoods where you have a lot of problems with public drinking, uh, then it seems to me that if a police officer walks by, a police officer is going to say, hey, uh, I understand you're just having a beer with the family, but we can't allow it. So it depends upon, again, how it's done and how the discretion is used. Should you uh, cite everyone uh, uh, who's on their stoop having a beer? Of course not. Should you cite some people? Probably if they're troublemakers or if, or, or if they're creating a lot of noise. George Kelling, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. George Kelling is a professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's best known as the co-author of The Broken Windows Theory. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org.
was like 15. And I was in fifth grade. 10 or 11, I want to say. I'm not even that young. I stole the... Seven pairs of underwear and like one, one bra. <laughs> I stole two bikes, a couple magazines, and some weights from the garage behind my house. Bright pink pack of Bubblicious. Beetle game. Mousse, shampoo, body wash. I saw this hat and I really liked it because I have an obsession with hats. <laughs> Some granny panties. <laughs> and you know they have that little sticker thing on the back. They don't have like those little metal detector tags. No metal thing and it was like 90 something so I just took it. We just ripped off the tag. Most shoplifters and pickpockets perpetrate their crimes in public places, on city streets or in crowded stores. But some minor thefts go undetected behind closed doors. Cityscape's Mary Wilson promised anonymity to New Yorkers who admitted to stealing from their office supply closets. We're asking people about their jobs today, and I'm wondering if you've ever stolen from the office. I'm not going to ask you your names. Yeah, I do it all the time. No way. I work for myself. (laughs) I wouldn't call it stealing. When I bring paper home, since I do a lot of work from home, I might bring a ream of paper home so that I can replenish my personal supply that I used. Just paper? Just paper. I stole batteries once. Yeah, I took batteries once. There was a huge supply of them, so I took only like two or three. Nah. Never in your life? Nope. Not a pen? Well, like pads and pencils and stuff that you just use. It's not as clear-cut. What would be out of line? What would be, like, crossing the line? Oh, taking any equipment or... um, What about batteries? Batteries? Um, I'd probably count batteries in there, too. Um, I work in the film business, so in, like, pre-production, fake things like Sharpies. Sharpies is probably my favorite thing to fake from an office. And there's nothing wrong with it? Um, I guess that's debatable. In the film business, I don't feel like there is, um, especially for someone who's working, like, as an assistant and maybe it's being underpaid. I think maybe that's the way I morally justify it. Do you think it's very possible that all the grunts and interns wandering New York City are kind of living off of the the stuff of their offices? I think that there's, that's definitely a good possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like what? Like post-its and some cool pens. We go to school. Oh, okay. We're we're allowed to. It's not really work, yeah. So where is the line when it comes to what you can take home, what you can take? Um, if it's more than, like, $5, you don't take it. No, more than a dollar. More than a dollar? Don't take it. What's less than a dollar? Paperclip? Yes, I have. I stole a print. Stole. I guess it was a sheet of paper because I did a print for my own personal use. Yeah, I did. I did. I really did, yeah. Did you feel bad about it? I, mm, yeah, I did. I was going to say no, but I did feel bad. Now, what about pens, paper clips, cars? No, I don't use uh, pens. you say cars? I said cars, yeah. Yeah, no, I've never taken a car from my office. Um, all the cars that are there stay inside the office. I don't have a job. <laughs> ever, ever in your life? Well, I used to be in the Army, and I didn't have anything to steal from there, so no, never. You never stole a tank? They never stole a tank. Never, ever. (laughs) Well, thanks for your time.
Most people wouldn't commit a petty crime for everyone to see. But there's one New York City law that nobody in a hurry feels guilty flouting. Cityscape's Ellen Burke filed this report on jaywalking. While it seems like jaywalking is a fact of life in New York City, it is against the law. The city's rules explicitly state pedestrians can't cross roads except at intersections with crosswalks, and they have to pay attention to traffic signals. I talked with pedestrians at the corner of 33rd Street and Park Avenue during lunchtime to try to get an idea of what drives us to jaywalk. That corner is right before the Park Avenue tunnel and notoriously dangerous for pedestrians. One thing I learned is the typical jaywalker isn't in the mood to chat. Excuse me, sir. Uh, My name's Ellen Burke. No time. No time, he said. Others offered more of an explanation for their deviant behavior. I'm in a hurry. I don't know. I think cars look out for us enough, except when you get hit every now and then. It is a law, correct? Yes. Ah, see, I didn't know that. Yes, it is a law. No, I did know that. It's just... Nobody treats it. Do you think the cops just don't care? No, they care, of course, because people every now and then get hit. But I think they got a lot more stuff to worry about. My name is Stephen Lee Edwards. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Ray Strada from NYU. It's a fast-paced city. We're already used to it. Uh, they haven't cracked down on the laws like L.A., so we're still getting away with it. On jaywalking. This is a. Oh, I was just going to jaywalk and I saw a cop. Do you think cops are a deterrent to jaywalking? Well, I just saw one and I didn't do it. I was just going to go up there and cross the right way. But generally, I do cross by the crosswalk. I don't know. It seems generally people walk in this in the crosswalk, but then there's some people that they just don't care and they just walk anywhere. My name is Ed Stown from New Rochelle. And even a woman who said she's seen pedestrians get hit at the corner admitted to an occasional jaywalking foray. My name is Paula J. Riley, and I'm an acting teacher in New York City. They said it was the second worst corner for accidents in New York City, uh, short of, what was it, 42nd and 8th. So because at one time it was eight-way traffic, it's much better now. A lot of the um, people that come to visit, they, you know, they see a red light, they don't cross. So it's more maybe of a New York thing. Oh, it's a very New York thing. Are you kidding? I walk a lot. I don't walk against the traffic. Let's put it that way. I'm, I'm too old and too wise, but a lot of people are in a great hurry in the city, and that's when accidents happen. After observing jaywalking, I still didn't know how to explain New Yorkers' penchant for defying pedestrian rules. So I talked with Noah Budnick, the senior policy analyst at Transportation Alternatives. But he didn't condemn jaywalking like I expected. No, a transportation alternative serves as an advocate for pedestrians and cyclists to make uh, safer streets in the city. So how does jaywalking kind of fit into what you guys are working toward? Well, jaywalking is a behavior that results from you know, streets not being designed to move people, but to move cars. So for everybody else to move around, sometimes it is necessary to uh, cross uh, in between and, and not at the green. I've noticed in a lot of articles about uh, pedestrian accidents, things like that, they'll note if someone, the pedestrian, isn't following traffic rules. Do you think that kind of is to put the blame on the pedestrian? Uh, yeah, and I think it's a cultural bias that you know there's a lot of a, a lot of instances, uh, not just in you know, traffic deaths where the victim is blamed, and uh, you know usually the more vulnerable person um, in the situation. Is, is taking the blame. And you know, really, it's, I think, incumbent on everybody to take responsibility for the actions, but also 
in situations where especially there are uh, people who are so much more vulnerable than others in that situation, and you know, specifically I'm talking about a pedestrian being far more vulnerable than somebody who's encased in a half ton of steel and driving down the street. But at the same time, is that to say people who are crossing, you know, without paying any attention, they can't be blameless in accidents either. What's a, a good balance to strike, I guess? Well, you know, the penalty for jaywalking shouldn't be death. And that's where a lot of coverage comes off. It's like, oh, it was, it was their fault that they died because they, you know, that person was jaywalking. And I think that that's, uh, you know, extremely, extremely over the top. And you know, we need forgiving streets, uh, especially in dense urban environments like New York City, where in, in many uh, neighborhoods, pedestrians outnumber cars 10, 20, 30 to 1. So, no, you know, as you're saying, there's so many more people who are walking than people driving cars, and New York is just a very walkable area. Do you think there even should be a law against jaywalking? Oh, there is. Fortunately, it's it's not enforced very often because I think the police have much higher things at the list for them to be enforcing, things like speeding, uh, red light running. You know, there's, there's a study a few years ago that showed that 1.2 million red lights are run every day in New York City. There's a lot of behavior change that needs to happen for people who are driving. Slowing down, yielding to walkers and bikers is extremely important. Enforcement is one way to do that. And that's something you guys think would be a lot more effective than any laws for pedestrians. Yes. Noah, thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. That's right. So it seems jaywalking is here to stay. But perpetrators should know that in New York City, this petty crime carries a $50 fine and may bring you the scorn of drivers, cyclists, and people who remember a PSA from the 70s. For Cityscape, I'm Ellen Burke. Don't cross the street in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the block. Don't cross the street in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the block. Use your eyes to look up. Finally today, some Bronx residents are keyed up over development plans for the Kingsbridge Armory. What was once called the crown jewel of the Bronx has sat vacant for over a decade. And now plans to turn the old military site into a mall have some on the defense. Reporter Katie Moore has the story. A brigade of 400 Bronxites are marching their way to the armory at the top of Kingsbridge Road. When they get there, they loop yellow caution tape around the armory's outside fence. Their message is clear. This is our armory. Local resident Vanessa Pastrano wants to make sure the neighborhood has a bigger say in the development. The Kingsbridge Armory means a chance, a real chance for our neighborhood to have decent jobs, to have recreational facilities for our children. That's a chance, a chance we have now. The armory was originally built to train National Guard troops at the end of World War I. In the 1950s, it became an arena for car races and boat shows. It briefly served as a woman's homeless shelter in the late 90s. While it's been vacant for some time, the armory was last used for a scene in the Will Smith film, I Am Legend. Because of the armory's rich history and landmark status, the idea of a mall is getting mixed reactions. Kingsbridge resident Emmanuel Lee says he's all for it. Do you know what's going in that big armory? Well, hopefully I, they put, put a mall in there. 
Yeah, what do you think about that? It's a good idea because, you know, it, it helps people, you know, as far as the neighborhood with different jobs, you know, job opportunities. So that's, that's a good thing. The way the economy is, it's a good thing. But resident Stephen Galvin says he's skeptical. They're concerned about these small business places. What's going to happen to them? With that concern in mind, about five years ago, the Kingsbridge Armory Redevelopment Alliance, or CARA, formed. The group meets monthly here in the basement of St. James's Church. Spokeswoman Desiree Pilgrim-Hunter says Kara's fighting for schools and more community space at the armory. Right now, plans for the historic structure also call for a 60,000-square-foot supermarket. That has Morton Sloan concerned. His family runs the Morton Williams grocery store across the street. Should they build their store, should they build their monster supermarket or, or wholesale club store, we'll end up closing our stores. Jesse Mazur is a lawyer for related companies, the developer chosen to repurpose the armory. He says a mall would encourage competition and boost business in the area. He also says he's seen resistance like this before. It's not uncommon that there's opposition. It's not uncommon that there's various different opinions. And that's what this process is about. It's about airing those and coming to the best solution. And Kingsbridge is not the first place where a battle like this is brewed. More than a decade ago, residents in Brooklyn were split over the Park Slope Armory. Some wanted schools and office space, but ultimately it was transformed into a track and field center, scheduled to open this fall. There's still a long way to go before any ground is broken in the Bronx. Plants need to go through the city council and the mayor first, a process that will take months. But as we walk around the armory, Desiree Pilgrim Hunter of Cara says she remains hopeful that this castle will live up to her dreams. I live for the day when there's no gates around this and I get to walk up those steps, go in through those doors, and know that we created something in there that benefits the entire community. And perhaps that's the bigger message here, unity in the community. Residents of all ages are coming together to fight for the future of the armory and to ensure whatever goes into the massive structure will live up to its original intentions, to serve and protect the community. For Cityscape, I'm Katie Moore. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to Curie Youth Radio for their segment on teens and stealing. Remember, you can always get past editions of Cityscape at WFUV.org. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend.